Super Talk Mississippi media production. Have you heard all the rave about the new Quick Grill located inside the Be Quick Chevron on Veterans Boulevard? Come visit Be Quick Chevron along with Quick Grill, Be Quick Food Marts, your locally owned hometown convenience store, wherever you are. Howdy, howdy, it's Rhino here, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Everyone and welcome to Midday Super Talk Mississippi. I'm your host Gerard Gibbard, along with Rhino in the Element Wealth Studio, guiding you through the middle of your day with facts, fodder, and fine music on this Hump Day. Speaking of fine music, this day, sixty years ago, the Fab Four, aka the Beatles landed for the first time in this nation in New York. Some 3,000 fans, they were going crazy, too. Uh, Shrieking, shall we say, uh, hysterical, mainly females. They skipped school. It was on a Friday. They were present at JFK Airport. The Fab Four stepped off their an American flight off the jetway there, and you can see the uh, famously the photos of them with the Pan American logos. They're not even in business anymore, Pan American. Well, I think they were a little shocked, honestly, at the reception. <laughs> and then it was just, uh, I believe, four days later, three days later, I guess, they appeared. On the Ed Sullivan Show. I remember. I watched it. I was a child, of course. Incredible. I mean, it was... You couldn't even hear them because of all this screaming. I think they aggravated Ed. <laughs> For all you youngsters out there. <laughs> oh, my gosh. This is a big time, though. Big old time. 1964. <laughs> they uh, they walked off that jet, and then they played on the Ed Sullivan Show. First public concert was in the Washington Coliseum. 8,092 <laughs> crowded inside. A ticket, $5.50 to see the Fab Four. At the time, I Want to Hold Your Hand was number one on the Billboard chart. And what I recall back then, we didn't have FM radio, only AM, right? Yeah. All hits all the time. <laughs> I love those those old DJs. Literally were DJs back then. They had to spin up the the vinyl and had to have the headsets on. You've seen that before. A lot of people oh, may yeah. not have. And, and what they do is they position the needle uh, past all the sort of dead air 
on the vinyl itself so that when they hit the button to start playing, it started with the music. But they positioned the needle off-air using headphones so they could listen as they spun with their hands. Until eventually, if a song was popular enough, there was a little groove that was visible. That's true. That's absolutely true. Line it up. But what I remember back in those days, and they just played the same song over and over and over. <laughs> there, there weren't uh, as many to choose from, perhaps, but nonetheless, they they would reach such a level of popularity. That, and that is back. I kid about it all the time. The all hit request line. That's. Kind of what I remember as a child on the local AM radios, they'd give you the phone number. Give us a call on the all-hit request line. Somebody would answer the phone. You'd say, hey, can you play such and such? And then you'd listen for about three hours <laughs> waiting for it because there was a million in front of you. And, of course, they they um, uh, had kind of a schedule of a set list, a play, uh, play schedule, where so to insert the requests, had to kind of wait for whenever those slots were available. But just reminiscing a little bit, I just thought that was interesting. That crossed my news feed 60 years ago today. Six days after that is when I Want to Hold Your Hand broke through as their first number one hit in the U.S. And as the story goes, the rest is history. But it seemed like that kind of launched further appearances of the British invasion who could forget that? And then I remember the Dave Clark Five, of course, came on their heels. Dave Clark on the drums was the lead singer. Not quite as much success commercially. No, but they did well. I mean, it's kind of hard to compete with the Beatles and their massive popularity at the time. Rolling Stones, of course, were around, and there were a number of other, and I know some folks will probably remember other other groups that, that hailed from jolly old England, but they... It kind of got us uh, started, I guess, on the uh, the more traditional rock band of the electric guitar and the electric bass, maybe a couple of guitars, a rhythm, and a lead guitar, the drums, and some organ mixed in, the animals, Eric Burden and the animals. Oh, yeah, with the Hammond organ. Oh, that was awesome. That guy was good, too, man. <laughs> he can make that Hammond organ sing. That's all there was, the old Hammond organ. Same one in the churches, right? Playing the hymns. Unless they had a full pipe organ in the church, yeah. That's true. Had to have something more mobile <laughs> to perform. The little wheel in the back that gave it that distinct sound. That's right. Exactly right. But, you know, watching those old videos, like the animals, for example, um, House of the Rising Sun is awesome. Uh, the old videos out there on YouTube. Uh, and, of course, back then it was customary for all the members of the band to dress alike in their suits and so forth and the Beatles popularized what were known as beetle boots had a real pointy toe black boots my brother 10 years older than me played in a band local band actually very successful local combo and they played all the songs and I uh, had the hair my brother had the mop head hair looked like Paul McCartney honestly and had the black beetle boots the uh, fender guitar is what he liked to play i don't think but i don't remember i don't think that's what george harrison played paul mccartney of course played the bass left-handed 
the Hopler or Nopler or something like that base. Somebody like bought that thing several years ago as a, as a uh, collector's item. The original one, I think he played. Yeah, George Harrison used a, a Fender Stratocaster. Okay. He also used a Gibson. He he had several guitars that he he okay. liked. Okay. All right. Well, thanks for that. And then um, Rickenbacker. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then John Lennon uh, on the rhythm guitar. Not sure which uh, which model he used. I believe I got that right. And then Paul McCartney, of course, on the bass, left-handed bass. Looked like a fiddle, an oversized fiddle. But that that bass was, I think he popularized it really to that point. Was yeah, it? Yeah, Lennon played Rickenbacker and occasionally Epiphone. Okay. Well, that's, that's interesting. That's not something you hear a lot about. I guess Fender and Gibson more popular, but at the time. Then, yeah, you were right. It was a Hoffner. Hoffner. Okay, thank you. McCartney played. Hoffner, yeah. So what I remember was back in the MTV pop-up video days. Remember that? Well, that was VH1, but yeah. Okay. Had a little – that's right. It was VH1. Pop-up right. video. Yeah. And they'd have the little bubbles that would come up during the videos. Little factoids. But, um, right. And there was one that I recall where they um, – I want to say it was Paul McCartney's my Brave Face solo tune. And there was a pop-up factoid that came up about the Hoffner bass. And that some collector had had bought the one he used, uh, I guess, while touring. I, I guess he made it available. I don't know. That was, I just remember that. But uh, I never heard of that brand before. And I don't know that it was widely used until he started. Then everybody had to have one, of course, just like they had to have the boots. <laughs> In, um, in the hairstyles. You cannot deny the influence they had on our culture. It's undeniable. Not to mention the, the uh, wide array of music they made. A bunch of, uh, bunch of songs and a bunch of albums and very successful. Nonetheless, just reminiscing a bit. I mean, the Beatles have enough good music that was popular and catchy enough to where there's an entire movie that the all the music, it's a musical movie. It's from the Beatles. Yeah. Across no, the universe. No doubt. Came out when I was in college. Decent movie. How about Great that? music. And then, of course, it launched a little Saturday morning cartoon. The Beatles cartoon, remember? That was kind of funny. The cartoonist really did capture the essence of their look pretty well. And then, of, uh, of course, the accents. Ringo was always funny. Ringo's one of those drummers that some drummers just say that they were, they're critical of his drumming, that he really wasn't that talented. And then there are others that I've seen. There's some YouTube videos where some of these these uh, really hardcore drummers analyze you know, his licks and his, and his drum beats in the various popular tunes, and they praise him. So... I don't know. It's artistic talent's always subject to a wide variety of opinions. Well, he was sneaky good. He was good enough to be able to hide. He didn't have to show off with crazy technique. He he could just keep rhythm in a way that a lot of people can't. I totally agree. And of course, back then it's a hi hat and a snare and a mounted tom and a bass drum and a floor tom. Played Ludwig drums and either one or two. Yeah, you didn't have 130 piece drum sets. <laughs> it wasn't Neil Pert. We're coming right back in the Element Well studio. Dan Eubanks at 11.05. Gerard Gibbert. He keeps his classified documents right where they belong. Inside a Journey record jacket from the 1980s. 
Gerard Gibbert, Super Talk Mississippi. Stones, speaking of the British invasion, and of course, I'm getting excited because Friday night is Journey in the Mississippi Coast Coliseum, looking forward to the boys being in town, that's going to be a whole bunch of fun, we'll be headed down there and uh, enjoying the great Mississippi Gulf Coast, and then uh, Crew of Neptune, Mardi Gras Parade, Saturday night, I shall be attending that good friend is one of the members and looking forward to that uh on the ceasefire text line reese and clarksdale says herman's hermits yeah absolutely appeared on the sullivan show i mean herman he was like 14 wasn't he? he was pretty pretty young at the time they were popular he surely looked it he probably was older than that i think they're actually still touring there's yeah. not like a crazy long tour list, but if I'm not mistaken, I want to say I saw it somewhere a couple months ago where Europe, maybe, like in Germany, okay. the Herman, Herman's Hermits are still playing. Well, I, I know that I've seen Herman host uh, television shows years ago. I can't remember the name of the show, but I think he also hosts uh, a show on Sirius XM. From time to time, as well. I guess I could have just looked at their website, okay. and I was wrong. It's a full tour. <laughs> oh my gosh! Started January seventh in England. Uh, let's see, where are they right now? They are getting ready to play at the Benidorm Palace in Spain this Sunday. Then they'll be in Norway for three stops. Wow. Then they're going to Australia until March, and then in April they're going to Denmark. Wow. Peter Noon, of course. We think of, we think of him as Herman because he was the scheduled all man. the way up till twenty twenty five. Yeah, so they're still going strong. Wow. Well, nineteen sixty three, sixty four, I think, is when they got cranked up. Oh yeah. Uh, Peter is seventy six. Seventy six. Gosh. So that that means he was. Let's see, seventeen, sixteen, seventeen. He was a teenager performing. That's incredible when you think about it. Being on national television, the Ed Sullivan Show. Mrs. Brown, you have a lovely daughter. <laughs> Remember, he put his finger in his cheek. Have you ever seen that when he tries to make dimples? Like, <laughs> oh my gosh. Apologize for that rendition. <laughs> Not quite Peter Noon. But, you, you know, you were enthralled with the just that really thick British accent. I'm not sure exactly where he was from. And, of course, as you know, there, there are different dialects in the U.K., even though it's a small country, geographically speaking, much like there are, of course, in this country. He was from the small county of Lancashire. Okay. At the small town of Davium. Wow. Never even heard of that. That's because they have a population of about 20,000 people. Okay. Uh, anyhow, a lot of fun reminiscing back in those days. Of course, I think the Beatles, didn't they indicate that they were largely influenced by um, American um, 
Blues and jazz? Oh, yeah. BB Early King. rock and roll was heavily influenced by the blues. Yeah. I think even Elvis, right, uh, influenced oh, yeah. them, they said. So, well, we're having fun with that. David and Pascagoula said those with a Hammond B3 organ. Yep. And that's pretty much common. Hammond B3 with a Leslie, says Mailman Clayton. I think that was common, uh, commonly used in, in bands of the day. And, of course, what much of the popular music included keyboards, included the organ. Kind of miss that. Don't have as much of that anymore in today's music, right? My favorite band, Journey, of course, has keyboards, but it's primarily the piano. Jonathan Kane, the keyboardist. I think he also has, if I'm not mistaken, an electric keyboard as well on top of his big grand piano when he's playing the music. Uh, a lot well, of you got to remember, at, at that point in time, you're talking about when the Beatles or even back to Elvis, like in that era... In order to learn, you pretty much had to have a, a master apprenticeship kind of situation where you were learning from someone or you were classically trained in a, a school dedicated to it. Yeah. I mean, you could learn the basics of music in music class, but to, to learn to perform and play, you had to learn from someone, whether that be one-on-one tutoring or in a classroom setting. You didn't have... The internet. Yeah, you didn't true. have magazines devoted mm-hmm. to, to teaching because there just there wasn't a need for it. There wasn't a, a a demand for it. So you had a lot of classically trained artists that were then trying to be creative with what they knew and what they'd learned. And it wasn't until you get to the seventies and eighties with the garage rock where I don't need any classical training. I'll teach myself. Which came about because of the popularity of the Beatles and Elvis, like that generation before. Yeah, well, I, I can remember again my brother back in that time period. He was ten years older than me, and, and their band they'd practice at the house. You know, they put the forty fives on the stereo, uh, the Beatles forty fives, and just play them over and over again, and stop them and restart them. And I mean, you didn't have the sort of recording equipment and playback equipment and, and control you have today for sure. But it, it was an arduous task. And they'd all be huddled around the little Zenith record player listening and then trying to reproduce that. That's kind of cool, trying to emulate that. And then, of course, you didn't have a way to record television shows either. So it's not like, oh, yeah, let's just go watch the Beatles perform uh, from some recorded video from when they were on Ed Sullivan. That didn't exist uh, as well. But, yeah, interesting time period, a lot of fun. Brian and Madison says, since you're talking about music, Saturday, February 3rd was the day the music died on my calendar. I think that's true. Absolutely, absolutely right. What about the band that was popular on the fraternity party circuit? Back from our day, Duck Clark and the Hot Nuts, says Louie from the 662. Dan in Hasburg says, Ringo is a good pocket drummer. Nothing flashy, but well-grounded. He still plays well. Yeah, that's right. Peter does a show on XM. I thought so. Peter Noon of Herman Servants. That's on the ceasefire text line as well. So just having a little fun. Um, shifting over to politics a little bit. That's what we talk a lot uh, about a lot here on this program. Ben from Madison. I keep hearing from lawmakers speaking about a permanent revenue stream going towards roads and bridges. Is that another way of saying they are about to increase the da- gas tax? I think there was a joint column that was authored by Brad White, um, of course, who is the 
Executive Director of the Mississippi Department of Transportation and Transportation Commissioner for the Central District, Willie Simmons. And I think they're perhaps calling for some uh, revenue just to be allocated from the general funds, what I'm seeing, Ben, uh, to uh, to the the um, state highway fund, which is what funds roads and bridges, uh, state monies, which come right now from fuel taxes, plus a drawdown of federal monies. And there's limits, of course, on what the federal money can be used for, and as well as the state money. So I think they're they're both perhaps looking at uh, the possibility, at least, of some uh, funds coming from uh, general fund revenues and maybe allocating some of that over to the state highway fund. I believe that I'm uh, accurately representing what they're looking for. I haven't seen as much a direct request uh, for an increase in Mississippi's fuel tax, which is the second lowest in the nation. We looked it up the other day just to confirm that it's still the case. Only Alaska has a, a lower fuel tax. Will we find out, Rhino, nine cents, I think, an excise tax, nine cents per gallon? Yeah. What are we in Mississippi, 18? Is it 18 or 15? It's in the teens. I know that. Um, our neighboring states all have a higher fuel tax, uh, excise tax per gallon. It's a fairly common model to fund Roads and bridges within the states from fuel taxes, and then yeah, Alaska's fourteen, okay. and Mississippi's eighteen. Okay, so it eighteen point seven. All right. Well, the other day I thought Mississippi was eighteen, and Alaska I said was fifteen. But I thought when we looked it up, you found some record that said nine. I wonder if they've increased it uh, recently. Um, so they're just a penny. Or have they decreased it? Because I was oh, looking okay. at data from okay. twenty twenty one, and now to nine. I found. 2024, it's down to nine. So, okay. yeah, they've decreased, they decreased their gas tax. Right. So they're flush with money. Yeah, there we go. So I, we were both kind of right. I, the 15 cents was the figure I had in my head, but it looks like just recently they dropped it. Okay. Interesting. There you go. The animals, part of the British invasion. That's a great song. Listen to that organ, man. That, of course, is Eric Burton. Still got a powerful voice. I've seen him singing some of their old tunes out there on YouTube of late. That's so good right there. (laughs) We're having fun with the music today because 60 years ago, the Fab Four landed at JFK in New York, and that launched the British invasion. Coming right back with more in the Element Well studio, Representative Dan Eubanks, a candidate for U.S. Senate at 1105, Jeremy Nelson at 1205 today. Stay with us. Covering the stories that matter most to Mississippians. Gerard Gibbert, Middays with Gerard, Super Talk, Mississippi. Peter Noon, Herman Hermits. Herm, I can't even get it out. Herman's Hermits. 
Oh, my gosh. Where did they come up with that name, I wonder? Who knows? That wasn't important back then, was it? Just come up with something. So that's one of those deals where, you know, I've talked about this before. So many that uh, uh, recording artists, vocalists in particular, from England, uh, often their their voice and their accent kind of manifests as a southern accent when they sing, right? But in their case, that's part of the shtick, was to retain that really thick <laughs> English accent that Peter Noon carried. That, that really kind of made the song interesting, especially over here in the United States. I mean, I, I think a lot of people like to hear the English speak, especially one that has, I would say that's a relatively refined um, oh, yeah. English accent there. Um, the received pronunciation. Yeah, exactly. And that's just kind of neat to hear. Um, let's see, the other one I'm thinking about that has an interesting accent in a video from the 80s was, um, gosh, it's, I think the band was named Breathe, if I'm not mistaken. And it's, um, uh, let's see, I can think of the the, the words, uh, Breathe, Hands to Heaven. I think that's it. So the the lead singer is, like, delivered to some house where they're re- ostensibly recording the song, gets out of a taxi, and it's one of the classic London-type taxis, you know what I'm talking about? And, With the um, crazy steering. Yeah, exactly. And then at the, after the song is performed, uh, the, the camera shows him sleeping in the back of the taxi, like he's been dreaming this. And the cab driver's just been sitting there with the meter running. <laughs> and he's got, I don't know, a, like a less refined <laughs> English accent. I don't know, sleeping in the back of the cab. That's going to cost you a fortune, is <laughs> what he said. <laughs> and he said, the other day, I, I, I'm paraphrasing, I had a passenger. He was drunk. <laughs> he fell asleep. <laughs> It cost him a bunch of money. I would consider that. I'm just thinking about that. An accent that is like less refined for an English person. And and maybe that's by design because he was a cab driver. I don't know. Nonetheless, having a little fun here. Uh, yeah, Gary the Berg says, don't forget Wolfman Jack. Yep, no doubt. Ruled the airways for a long time. It was the uh, the Guess Who, I believe, that recorded the song. Clap for the Wolfman, and that's what it was about. You remember those days, Gary's what they call payola. They pay the deep uh, the DJs under the table to spin their tunes to pr- promote the music. And you're right, Wolfman Jack, a uh, very powerful figure in those days, and everybody wanted him to promote and play their music. And uh, lot lots of. Uh, I guess, controversy surrounding all that stuff from those days. Clap for the Wolfman, the name of the song, as I recall, by the guests. And they kind of tell that story. you got to pay him so he'll <laughs> play your record, something to that effect, in the in the lyrics. Kind of neat. Yeah, I saw that, Gary. He also sent a shot of uh, the woke kindergarten calls, uh, teacher calls for destruction of America. We've been trying to end y'all. Yeah, I... I I listened to that video. It was disgusting yesterday, um, Gary, as well. And today it's a news story. It's extremely troubling that you've got 
folks such as this teacher that are interacting with such young, impressionable minds, which are total sponges at that age, and they're taught to trust adults and to believe what adults tell them. And you have this teacher taking advantage of such a situation to push her personal little ideological agenda on these youngsters. It's disgusting. And if I'm not mistaken, this was a public school kindergarten as well, which is even more bothersome. Really is incredible. Gary from Tishomingo says, Hit Parade would display a song each month with the guitar chords, kind of like sheet music. Yeah, I do remember that. Thanks for reminding us of that, Gary. That's right. To Rhino's point, that's how you had to learn that stuff, right? Or you go to the music store and try to find sheet music for the popular rock and roll music of the day. I remember that as well. But if you found sheet music, you had to be able to read it. That's true. You had to have some ability to actually read music, no doubt about it. All, all neat stuff. Just having fun reminiscing here this morning. You may uh, know by now that Republicans in the U.S. House of Representatives have failed to impeach Secretary of Homeland Security Alejandro Mayorkas. The, uh, the vote was as close as it can be, 216 to 214, with four Republicans defecting and joining Democrats to uh, essentially defeat these articles. And honestly, it's not a positive reflection, in my view, on the Republican Party here. Now, I will point out, Representative Steve Scalise is undergoing treatment for blood cancer. He was absent. Had he been present, present, that would have made a difference. No doubt about it. However, There was an interesting procedural move. There were three reps, Ken Buck of Colorado, Tom McClintock of California, and Mike Gallagher, all Republicans. They initially joined with the Democrats in opposing impeachment. Representative Al Green, a Democrat from Texas, he missed earlier votes due to surgery. He arrived shortly before this vote in a wheelchair. I believe I read somewhere where... He was in scrubs or hospital pajamas, if not scrubs, but you know what I mean, that what they give you at the hospital, <laughs> to, uh, to actually be in the chamber and cast a vote. So that was critical for, for the Democrats, but it was 215 to 215, which means it would have failed. When Democratic lawmakers in the chamber began to heckle the Republicans, They started crying out, order, order. Oh, my gosh, as the clock was ticking down. And then it was uh, Homeland Security Committee Chairman Mark Green, a Republican from Tennessee. He's the one that actually brought the articles to the floor as the chairman of the committee where the articles were drafted. And some others in the chamber, they actually made their way over to Representative Gallagher, to try to convince him to change his mind. This is weird. I, I'm, I'm still trying to follow it. But he ultimately, uh, he so he was changing his, they were trying to get him to change his mind. But it was the GOP conference vice chair, that was a bit of drama going on, Blake Moore. He flipped his vote from a yay to a nay. 
And the Democrats celebrated, went crazy, as you can imagine. Uh, He's a Utah uh, Republican. And so apparently this allows this uh, motion um, or this measure to be voted on again at a future date because he flipped the vote. That's my understanding of how that procedure works. And so the feeling among Republicans is that, well, if we had Scalise available in the chamber to vote, the outcome would have been different. You do have to wonder, though, how good a vote counter is Speaker of the House Mike Johnson. I I, I mean, it just seems like that he didn't do a really bang-up job here. And it was uh, Representative McClintock, a Republican, he said America's founders, quote, didn't want political disputes to become impeachments because that would shatter the separation of powers that vests the enforcement of the laws with the president. So, uh, you know, it's I think it's pretty clear to me that the secretary has, in fact, in fact, met the standards of the Articles of Impeachment. Now, the question is, do the Articles of Impeachment meet the standards as set forth uh, in our Constitution for impeachment? He would be the second, right? I believe that's right. The second Cabinet Secretary had the measure passed uh, to be impeached by the House. Uh, Of course, the two articles, as I recall, were willful and systemic unwillingness to uphold the law and breach of public trust. I guess you can make your own mind up whether or not that satisfies the impeachment standards. Clearly, those guys incompetent at a minimum. He's incompetent. And for him to stand in front of the Congress and the nation and say the border is secure is 100 percent horse hockey. And it's uh, it's prop. There you go. Hands to heaven. It's a great tune by Breathe. Go watch it sometime on YouTube and pay attention to the very end when he's in the cab and he wakes up and that cabbie starts talking. It's great. And they start driving off. <laughs> and he looks at the meter and it's like 41 bucks or something. He just smiles, goes back to sleep. <laughs> We're coming right back in the Element Well studio. Representative Dan Eubanks at 1105. He's a candidate for the United States Senate. Is with Gerard. Good for America. Good for fans of justice and truth. Good for us. Super Talk Mississippi. This is what we stand for. The great Phil Collins, he's just sort of in poor health right now. Multi-talented, no doubt about it, man. Good grief. He's the saving grace for the Disney movie Tarzan. His soundtrack was phenomenal. It Usually sure with a soundtrack, you'll have an artist that they'll write a song or two if they're feeling really generous that's devoted to the song or to the movie. And... It's hit or miss on how how much 
the heart they put into it and how good the music is. And then Phil Collins comes along and does the entire soundtrack, plays every instrument, sings in like 18 different languages for around the world. Unbelievable. Uh, just an unbelievable talent. No doubt about it. On the ceasefire text line, that's 601-879-4395. Ben from Madison, yeah, the speaker's inexperience showed on this vote. Got to learn from it and make sure something like this doesn't happen again. By the way, we are one month and one day away from the old government funding showdown again. Remember, a continuing resolution once again was passed. Some of the funding runs out on the 8th of March, some the 15th. I haven't seen a lot of progress being made. It just looks like we're headed for another continuing resolution. Kick the old can down the road. But we got a new speaker, new sheriff in town. I thought that was going to fix all this. Nope. Doesn't look like it. Incredible. So um, I'm going to make a bold prediction. Right now, because we got? we got one segment until we speak to Representative Dan Eubanks, who's a candidate for uh, United States Senate. I think there's a strong possibility that the House may flip to Democrat and the Senate flips Republican. Now, I know some folks are upset with those four House members, and really it's fair to say the fourth voted against impeachment, according to what I understand, uh, to allow another vote in the future when they the numbers are uh, more in their favor of securing impeachment, passing it. The other three, I know folks get upset and say, hey, they're just rhinos and they're not really on board with uh, the Republican agenda here, here's what has to be kept in mind. If either of those reps represented a Republican-held district in Mississippi, no doubt that would tank them. They got no chance of re-election. I believe that'd be the case. Or certainly it would go a long way towards harming them if they've got primary opposition. Let's put it that way. However, However, in those districts... It's just the opposite. That's what they have to calculate. That's what they have to assess and handicap. They're in districts that can go either way. And if if that weren't the case, then you wouldn't see all this turnover that we do in the House in terms of control. It's it's just constant. You get the um, you get the House elections that coincide with the presidential election, and then you get the midterms. And more times than not, whatever happens in the terms of control of the House at the presidential cycle, it flips in the midterms. That's fairly typical. Things kind of gravitate back towards, I guess, an equilibrium, if you will. But I think these three candidates have clearly taken a sense of uh, where their constituents stand and gotten some temperature there in their respective districts and have determined, you know, if I cast a vote in favor of impeachment, I'm likely, given their particular situation and whomever a Democrat is that might be opposing them, 
in the general election, that might cause them to lose their seats. A little different. So you really have to look at it on a district-by-district basis, especially those which are very fluid. Now, don't forget, we got a special election coming up in New York for the seat vacated by George Santos, who was expelled. And that looks to be coming down to the wire. Could go either way, honestly. And that'll be critical as well. So we have to pay attention to that. More importantly, I I do feel positive about flipping the Senate. And if you had a choice between the two chambers uh, in terms of control, you'd want the Senate because that's where, obviously, a vote among 100 counts for more. But in, additionally, that's where Supreme Court justices and cabinet appointments, etc., uh, all kinds of other um, jobs, if you will, and uh, officials get approved. You want that control. But the map kind of sets up more advantageous for Republicans. And later on in the program, I'll kind of give you the sort of my top ten of where I think we might see a flip in 2024 that uh, would put the Senate in Republican control. Coming right back with Representative Dan Eubanks. Stay with us. And now, and now, another hour of the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Begin your transition now. Now on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. It is a middays. Only two days remain till we'll be down in the Mississippi Gulf Coast Coliseum. The Mississippi Coast Coliseum, I think, is the official title of the building, the facility, and Journey's going to be down there. 7.30, kicking off the Freedom Tour 2024. We welcome to the program now. It's Representative Dan Eubanks. He's in today because he's running for the United States Senate. Representative Eubanks, thanks for coming in. Hey, thanks for having me, Gerard. So what uh, what motivated you to jump in this race? Uh, you, of course, are challenging um, Mississippi Senior Senator Roger Wicker. Oh, well, you know, it's a long story. I don't know how much time I got. Go ahead. Well, <laughs> give, give us the high level. I'll give you the high level. You know, um, and it's not just me. I think uh, most, uh, pretty much all the Republicans I'm coming across as I crisscross this state uh, nonstop, um, he ceased to represent them and represent the Republican conservative ideals. Uh, he, he's been on the, the opposite side of a lot of issues, even from our other senator. And, um, you know, it was one of those things where you start feeling that tug. And, and, and my whole entry into public service was was bathed in prayer. It was like, well, Lord, I don't know, man. And, and I'd fleece him, and, and, and I've seen him show up in so many big ways. I've been humbled to be a part of some really big wins for our state, for our nation. And I started feeling that again. I'm watching him voting on the, you know, siding with the Democrats when it came to funding the Green New Deal stuff for hundreds of millions of dollars for transgender and, and gender equity initiatives and supporting, like, Scott Colum. He was his blue card and Scott for the Northern District Federal Judge. He's a Biden pick Soros back judge. And if it wasn't for Cindy Hyde Smith, he'd be one of our judges right now. And and I'm just like, what is going on here? And so he ceased to represent me and most of the Republicans that I know. And so 
after about a year of prayer and, and fleecing God, and, and every time it'd come back, it's like, okay, maybe I didn't hear him right. You know, Lord, let the fleece be dry and the ground be wet. <laughs> let, okay, let the, let the fleece be wet and the ground be dry. It kept coming back as what I was supposed to do. And so I knew on the front side this would be a David and Goliath scenario. I mean, you don't take on a 30-year member of the swamp that's got millions upon millions of special interest dollars and 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 know what the reality is you know most incumbents are always successful at staying in office but the word that i that god gave me was daniel i don't call you to be successful i call you to be faithful you let me worry about the outcome and so i i am trying to be faithful to what i feel i'm being called to do and i honestly believe that this will be the most important election that you and i will have seen in our lifetime quite possibly our nation's history you don't have to be a rocket scientist you don't have to be a a psychic to read the tea leaves or the writing on the wall to say we are out of control we've got a wide open border and a nation is only a sovereign as its borders we've got we've got billions upon billions of dollars going to protect other nations borders and leaving ours wide open we've got debt issues that you can only kick the can so long and 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 usually the time horizon for most most of our our political ruling class in dc is well it's next election it'll be somebody else's problem we'll keep printing we'll keep printing and uh and and most americans and i know most all mississippians they have felt what uncontrolled spending does you're paying 30 40 percent more on groceries you know you're paying more on everything and when you print money like that you devalue the dollar when you devalue the dollar it's a tax on the middle class and so all of these things lined up and and it's like for such a time as this i would i would rather try and fail than to do nothing and watch it burn down and regret and so uh i am I am stepping into the the race, and I'm traveling the state, and I'm spreading the good news of, hey, you know, I, I'm not a unproven quantity. Right now, I have the highest lifetime average conservative rating of anyone serving in state government in Mississippi. And I don't say that to brag. I say that to say I know what it's like to be in the trench. I know what it's like to be the lone guy on the hill charging the line when nobody's behind you. I know what it's like to be the, the lone red light on the board. And, and I want to take that same tenacity and same passion and love for my country. I want my son to grow up with what I had. I want my son's children to grow up with what I had. And and I truly believe we are at a crossroads as a nation, and it's now, uh, this year. And it matters not just who we put in the White House, but who we put in the Capitol building. Okay, so you, let's let's talk about the border, because um, I'm sure you're aware that uh, recent polls show that that has been elevated to the number one issue uh, yeah. On the minds of voters, and even in the recent uh, primary in New Hampshire, the uh, the exit questions uh, showed that even in New Hampshire, that uh, the border is their number one concern. What can you do, just as a single U.S. senator, to change that situation? The border, no doubt, is wide right. open. We've talked about it extensively. The president has the power right now, today, to to reinstate some policies that at least gets it more under control. Uh, than it was. First, one of the first things he did uh, right after he came off the Capitol steps on inauguration day was sign a series of executive orders, essentially terminating and erasing and reversing all of Trump's policies. Oh. So what would you do as a senator to well, change absolutely. that? Well, absolutely. You know, here's the thing. A lot of people fail to realize that, like, you know, when you go and represent Mississippi in that role, mm-hmm. you have multiple responsibilities. One of them, it, the first and foremost one, is to represent your people. 
and to take care of their needs and issues as it, as it interacts with the federal government. The other is you have a bully pulpit that, that the rest of the nation doesn't have. You have the opportunity to go on and drive the narrative, and somebody needs to do that. But but also, I will support strong border policy. I'll support President Trump, which I'm hoping will be reelected in our next president. Um, and if you remember, the, the guy I'm running against, Roger Wicker, he opposed Trump when Trump tried to secure the border. Now, he's... You see his commercials everywhere, and it's like tough on the border. Got to finish the Wall Act, and and, and um, it's kind of like, well, that's about ten million illegals too late. We've got three states of Mississippi worth of illegals in our country right now, and and so I will absolutely support support any efforts, um, and it's not going to be all talk. Um, you know, th- like I said, we are only sovereign as our border, and we have a wide open border. So, what does that say about our nation? And so um, I, I think that, yeah, no man has all the power to do it on their own, but they can build coalitions. They can they can use their position and their bully pulpit to drive narratives, and they can also be bold enough to stand and fight when others are too busy making deals and, you know, trying to come up with a border plan that really isn't a border plan, to call it out. I mean, have I, either of our – well, Cindy Hyde came out with a statement on it, but – but uh, have any of them really called out the problems with this Langford bill? Yeah, well, I mean, the Senator Wicker did make uh, kind of a real brief statement about it. Uh, basically said he thought it, it was dead, um, that if, if it comes up to the floor for a vote, it doesn't have the votes to pass. And that was after they met uh, Monday, uh, had a behind-closed-doors meeting led yeah. by uh, Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. Uh, th- but that's all I've seen him say. I haven't but he really never seen... said what he thought about it. Did yeah, he? no, and neither and, did Cindy Hunt Smith. Right. Cindy Hunt Smith, and, not... ne- and neither of them came out and and um, declared their opposition to the measure. There were a number right. of senators that did about twenty or so that said, "Yeah, this is this is a no go for me." They really, as far as I can tell, never stated a position on it. And I'm so. not afraid to tell you where I stand. I, I know people. We, we've lost the art of agreeing to disagree on things, and politics has gotten really ugly. And it's yeah. not just at the federal level; it happens at the state level too. Okay. And let's so, let's yeah. talk about um, uh, in our our time remaining. Let, let's talk about uh, the economic matters. You you mentioned the out of control spending. Your concern about uh, future generations and so forth. So you're aware we're running about a two trillion dollar deficit. Uh, have you thought about the two trillion dollars in the budget that you would cut? Well, you, you know, it's funny. You and I had this conversation back in the summer when I yep, was on your show. You sure did. And, we sure did. And, you know, it, it, there's this this mindset that, well, you know, everything, you know, okay, so you cut a billion here or a hundred billion there, you know, it, it, is it really that much in the grand scheme of things? Right. Well, ultimately, you know, it's the smallest leak that sinks the biggest ship. And, and, and to say, well, you know, it's kind of pointless. Why even try? There's a lot of waste that goes on in government. First off, I don't think we should have sent a quarter trillion dollars, basically, uh, to the Ukraine. Right. Um, and, and all of that adds up. And, and whether it's government waste or funding DEI initiatives or exporting all of our woke uh, agenda to the rest of the world, there are millions upon millions of dollars behind all yeah. of that. And I'm just trying to get to a point where we truly do um, end the deficit spending yeah. and start paying down <laughs> the debt. you got $2 trillion to do that. So I'm all for cutting 100 billion here, 100 billion there. We need a balanced budget. We, we okay. need to, we need to have a balanced budget amendment, and and you know the convention of states. That's one of the the goals of yeah. that. And we I think we've been on here and talked Article Five convention. Um, if if Congress is unwilling to regulate itself, then it's time for the people in the states to step up and say, okay, we'll do it for you. We'll okay. propose an amendment and take it back to the people. Okay. 
Well, I, I'm just curious. I, I would just like to see candidates say, this is the $2 trillion I'm going to cut to balance the budget. I want a balanced budget. This is what my balanced budget would look like. So I'd, I'd like to see all the candidates to well, talk I, about that. Absolutely. That. And I think, I think some of that is, you know, when you get there, you have your ideas, but once you get there, you kind of know. I could tell you where I'd cut stuff in state government because <laughs> I'm, sure. I'm swimming in those yeah, waters. I, I get it. But it's not running a deficit. So the state's True. not running a deficit. Correct. And it's not borrowing money. But well, the federal government is, and that's affecting all of our oh, pocketbooks. Absolutely. So, well, um, best of luck to you, and appreciate you coming on, Representative Dan Eubanks, a candidate for U.S. Senate. And the primary is? The primary is March the 12th. You can check me out at daneubanks.com. That's D-A-N-E-U-B-A-N-K-S. I tell you exactly where I stand on the issues. If I say I stand there, I stand there. We'd love to have you on Team Eubanks. Appreciate it. Coming right back, folks, in the Element Well Studio. Hey, this is Will with the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Rolling, hit it, go, play it. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. Wow, I feel good. I knew that I wouldn't. I feel good. I knew that I wouldn't. We are back in the Element Well studio. Are you thinking about or planning for retirement? Do you have a plan? Go to myelementwealth.com or call 601-957-6006 to let Element Wealth help you find your balance between income, growth, and guarantees. Jeremy Nelson, partner at Element Wealth, on the program at 1205. So do you have a bit of an update from um, the Mississippi senators regarding this uh, immigration bill that looks like it's headed for failure, for defeat at this point in the Senate. And so, and this is within the last 24 hours. There's there's a bit of an update. So first, Rhino, you just shared with me that Senator Cindy Hyde-Smith, who, by the way, was on with Mr. Gallo this morning, um, yeah, she really went off on the legislation and made it clear that she thought it was a bad bill and would not be supporting it. But apparently she made a statement late yesterday. Is that right? Yeah, she was reiterating the points she put out in a statement on her website uh, yesterday afternoon. It's got about three paragraphs. The last paragraph says, quote, I've said before that securing the border is a top priority for me and that I'm willing to work on legislation to fix our longstanding border security and immigration policies. However, I cannot support this border policy bill which is not the answer to begin correcting all the problems caused by the administration's open border policies. Given their record, I have very little confidence that President Biden or Secretary Mayorkas would actually enforce it. And I think that's pretty much the narrative she shared this morning on the program with Mr. Gallo. And uh, then Senator Wicker, he uh, he echoed those sentiments as well. He released a statement uh, where he said that his decision is uh, is firm that he will not be voting t- today on preceding the bill when Sh- Senator Schumer brings it to the floor for consideration. And it says that stricter measures are needed along the southern border, and he has no faith. President uh, Joe Biden and Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas will uphold the regulations included if passed. And honestly, that I think that's a reasonable concern, given the fact that Joe Biden is circumventing the Supreme Court decision where he struck, they struck down his uh, ability to just 
light a match to about $800 billion of student loan debt, and he's still working around it through the agency complex. And just changing the regs on the repayment process. I, I agree uh, with uh, the senator here. I don't trust either one of them as well to, uh, to carry out what would be passed into law here. They'd figure out some dang way around it. And on Senator Wicker's website from yesterday, a statement on the supplemental vote, which, same thing, quote, I will vote no tomorrow on proceeding to the bill when Senator Schumer brings it to the floor for consideration. Okay. Senate Democrats have shown they are not willing to agree to a strong border protection proposal. President Biden and Secretary Mayorkas have refused to use already existing laws to address the border crisis, and I have no confidence that their actions would improve under the proposed legislation. I think all that's reasonable. So we just want to clarify that. And initially, uh, so I'm, I'm about 24 hours behind. Uh, initially, there was a, a number of senators that came out um, in strong opposition to uh, the measure, uh, but there were a whole lot of others that just really didn't make any statement had not yet concluded and not yet announced uh, their position and how they were likely to vote. And then, of course, there was this so-called closed-door meeting, which occurred Monday, led by the um, minority leader, Mitch McConnell. They emerged from that and said, yeah, this looks like this thing's not going to happen. That's the statement I recall that Senator Wicker made just after that, that meeting. So things have changed a bit in the last 24 hours. We just want to make sure we, we uh, share that with you accurately, that that's where they are. Both of Mississippi senators have indicated their opposition to this measure, um, and and Rhino just read the official statements from both of their offices. We just want to pass that on to you. So, and that's just um, I think necessary just to clarify um, based on the interview we had with Representative Eubanks, who is of course running um, to challenge Senator Wicker here, and that that votes a month and a and a five days away coming coming up right around. The uh, corner, the U.S. Senate, or the primary in general in the state of Mississippi, moved up this year. It's been in June historically, and we have uh, that was changed. So, I uh, want to pass that on. You know, I, I, I just, I'm still concerned about, and while I certainly appreciate anybody for jumping into these these races, no doubt about it, that uh, it, it takes a lot of effort it takes money it's very stressful it's very demanding and so man i respect anybody especially someone that's willing to uh, take on an entrenched incumbent in a statewide race that's huge and and so hats off to to anybody representative dan eubanks uh, among those um, that i think deserve our respect for just engaging and stepping up no doubt about it but I'll also just want to make the point that even though certainly as a voting member of a body that consists of 100 votes, you got a lot more power than being a voting member of a body that has 435, no doubt about it. Um, but addressing these critical issues, my concern is, and it's, it's no disrespect to anybody that says, yeah, I want to shut the border down and balance the budget and get control of the crazy spending. I'm all for that. I'm just making a point that half the country or more doesn't feel the same about that. They want the border open. And they're sending people to Congress that want the border open. They vote for a president that wants the border open. And and the same with respect to spending. Their idea of, of uh, getting some sort of 
handle on the federal budget is to just raise taxes. You never hear Democrats talk about reducing spending. And to Representative Dan Eubanks' point, there's a whole bunch of wasteful spending at the federal level. And in particular, Rhino, we've shared several times, CBO came out and said, yeah, at least $270 billion that we can identify a year. And some $80 billion of that, I think they attribute to Medicaid, because there's so much craziness that goes on with Medicaid. Um, and then you've got uh, Medicare as well. So I'm talking about mandatory spending, which you can't even touch, unless you got 60 votes to reform it in the Senate, uh, unless you end the filibuster. And then, of course, uh, uh, Social Security, there's a lot of waste, fraud, and abuse in all those programs. And then you look at the discretionary component of spending, which is about $1.6 trillion. Just think about that. You could eliminate all of it. Zero. Not just the waste and the unnecessary spending. Zero. And we still have a $400 billion deficit. So um, any candidate at any level uh, at the federal uh, for federal office, when they start talking about let's balance the budget and start chipping away at the debt, my natural next question is, what $2 trillion are you going to cut to achieve that? I'm with you. And I'm all for, yeah, we can cut $100 billion here and $100 billion there, but unless you cut it all, and then some out of the mandatory spending, you can't balance the budget. Just simple as that. It's just math. I'm just sharing the math. $2 trillion deficit, $1.5 trillion of discretionary spending, which, by the way, is appropriated. The mandatory spending is on autopilot. It doesn't get touched. So even if you said, okay, Speaker of the House Mike Johnson says, I propose these 12 spending bills of zero. We're spending nothing on the military, nothing on all the other operations of government. Zero. We're still going to have a $400 billion deficit. That's how screwed up it is that nobody will talk about. So when any suggestions are made about reforming mandatory spending, which again requires 60 votes in the Senate, the next thing that happens is they're going to take away your Social Security and your Medicare. You hear it over and over and over again. No, we're trying to balance the dang budget and introduce some common sense into the budgeting process. And we now know that we're at a point where unless we start uh, introducing some serious reforms into mandatory spending, it's mathematically impossible to balance the budget and thus begin to pay down on the debt. you got to get out of the hole first before you start paying your debt off. Now, you may, from strictly a cash perspective, you could certainly pay down on the debt. And, and honestly, the, the government does. I mean, we're, re, we're redeeming. Um, those debt instruments, those bonds we sell to fund the government on a daily basis, but then we just have to go sell more to fund more spending. So you're not really accomplishing anything, not solving any problem. So I think it's a reasonable question to ask anyone, what does your budget look like? And and it needs to be $2 trillion less than the present one to balance. And, and now, to me... I'd like to see the House, in particular, which is under Republican control, commission a, um, a, a some sort of organization, a blue ribbon panel, whatever you want to call it, but immediately commission, commission an investigation 
line item on a line item basis into all spending objects and find all this waste, fraud, and abuse. Hell, the CBO already found $270 billion. Let's do that immediately and put that on the table to address it through legislation. Coming right back in the Element Well studio. Stay with us. Is everybody ready? I'm ready. Ready here. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. A four-hour song there <laughs> on the ceasefire text line talking about Phil Collins. Collins, he plays drums for Eric Clapton on my favorite album of his, Behind the Sun. Never knew that. How about that? I'm not surprised. Reese and Clarksdale points out anytime you can play drums and lead vocals, you're talented. Phil Collins, Levon Helms as examples. Totally agree. Ricky in Aberdeen says, Eubanks has my vote. Roger is slipping. Landfill Management, Wicker is a rhino, water boy from McConnell. Casey says, oh my goodness, I'm so glad Dan Eubanks is on your show saying all those things about Senator Wicker. That is exactly how I feel. Does he have on his website Senator Wicker's voting record on non-conservative issues? You know, that's Bob and Starkville. I think that once again begs the question, What's conservative? The senator would say, my votes were conservative. And so that, it's very subjective. That's the point I'm making. I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to downplay what Bub is saying here. I'll, I'll share this for the audience. And this is not the first time I've done this. You know this, Rhino. There, there are three votes that the senators cast that um, I, I disapproved of. The first one was the $1.7 trillion omnibus bill. And that, again, that's uh, how the discretionary part of uh, spending is funded in lieu of what's called regular order, which is passing 12 separate funding bills, each of which covers a category of discretionary government, like defense has got its own bill, the Defense Authorization Act. Then you got all the other agencies in the federal government, and uh, some of those get combined with others in a single bill, a total of 12. And this is this is the primary reason that Kevin McCarthy was removed from his post as Speaker of the House, that uh, the Republicans in the House that wanted him gone felt like we can't keep kicking the can down the road and just passing these giant omnibus spending bills without debating and deliberating how we appropriate the taxpayer money to all these functions of government. And so he was removed. But that's exactly what we've done since he's been removed. They haven't been omnibus bill. They've been what are called continuing resolutions, which just continue the last omnibus bill passed. That's all that is. So we've already done that. It looks like we're headed for another round of that. In other words, status quo, things stay the the same. No change. So... You know, as far as the obvious liberal agenda issues, Bob and Starville, I honestly don't know what um, Representative Eubanks is talking about. I'm, I'm not um, disputing what he's saying there. Um, I can tell you that if you voted to fund the government, there's a lot of funding in the omnibus bill, in the continuing resolution, that's being used by the U.S. military 
to advance wokeness. There just ain't no doubt about that. There, There's privilege walks and all sorts of training and all of this DEI stuff. I mean, it, it is... It is entwined in every aspect of government because that happens at the at the uh, White House level. They dictate all that stuff. What the Congress does is appropriate money to operate those agencies, but the the operational aspect of the agencies, for the most part, and the policies that they adhere to and that they promulgate, that's that's based on direction from the White House. Now you can override that with legislation. But until you got a president is going to sign a bill in a Senate that's going to pass what comes out of the House, that ain't going to happen. So here's the choice. The the House could say, okay, we're not giving the whole government any money. No money to the military until they get rid of all that stuff. Okay, and then we shut down the military. That's what happens. I mean, if you don't give them any money, I'm not talking about just a temporary shutdown. I'm just saying if you say we're not going to appropriate any American tax dollars or debt, as the case is these days, to the American military, to the armed forces, until they strip all this woke crap out. I'm all for that. We've called it out countless times here on the program. We have blasted... Joint Chiefs of Staff General Milley, who back in 2020, 2021, was on the Hill testifying that white rage was the biggest challenge in the U.S. military. You remember that, right? Now, we played the clips. He said that. Now, I'm scratching my head like, where did he get that from? Who thinks that other than this guy? Uh, who's in charge of the, of the entire armed forces in this country? It's just complicated, and that's the only point I'm trying to make. Man, I respect anybody that wants to change those things. And I, when Representative Eubanks says, I'm going to scream from the top of the mountain that we got to change the way things are done here, I'm all for that. Absolutely. But I just point out that, you know, until we have control, I mean, what's needed is you want to start really making marked changes in the way things are run in Washington. You need control of the House. You need control of the Senate. It's even better if you have a filibuster-proof Senate, which means you need 60, 60 Republicans. That would support the agenda. And then you need the White House. Anything less than that, it's pretty hard. So here's what happens. This is exactly what happens. It's what Vivek Ramaswamy calls the managerial state. That's what he calls them. It means that the agencies end up running the country. Not the Congress, not the people you vote for, not the people you send there to represent you, and you cast your vote based on their philosophy and their policy positions. No, they don't get anything done. It's the deep state. It's the, it's the bureaucratic complex with these entrenched managers, if you will, and administrators that are highly compensated that you can't remove. It's, it's literally an act of Congress to remove one of those people. They've been there forever. That's why I think we need term limits at the at the agency level with agency management. I actually think that's more important than term limits in the Congress because they wield more carnage on the country. That's where all the craziness comes from. It's from the agencies. And the only option we have is to file lawsuits. And that's happened. That's what happened with the 
forgiveness of student debt. That was going to be done without the consent of Congress. It's what happened with affirmative action. That was outside, exclusive of Congress, all uh, being practiced and acted upon by the agencies. It was um, jumping all over crazy climate stuff. Remember the state of West Virginia? I think they were kind of one of the first that said, you know, the agency, the EPA here, is really acting without authority. The the laws passed by the Congress didn't give them the authority to implement all these policies and to uh, to control um, the private sector or even the public sector at the state level. And West Virginia sued, and they won. The Supreme Court said, "Yeah, the Congress really didn't confer this kind of this kind of power." But that's happening every day. It's every day this kind of stuff's happening. All happening at the agency level. It's right now. Without the consent of Congress, you're looking at the Department of Labor. This is essentially trying to just completely upend the gig economy, basically saying you want to just be a subcontractor and just take on odd jobs and work for for companies, provide your services to individuals or organizations and get paid as a as a contract employee. No, no, you can't do that anymore. You you've you really need us to step in and make sure that you're being treated like an employee and you're getting benefits and all all the other fringes that are typically associated with full-time employment. But now you're also going to be subject to whatever your customers are now going to require of you like an employer. Well, that's happening without Congress. I mean, you want to know about socialism? That is socialism right there. That is complete unmitigated intervention into the private sector and telling people how you're going to work and telling uh, folks that hire people and pay outsiders to perform services for them what that arrangement's going to look like. That's socialism. That's central planning right there. Well, just think about that. No Congress is involved in that. Think about the number of people that would be impacted. There's people, I guarantee you, listening right now, you know that, Rhino, they're thinking, man, I don't want that. I like my style. Right now, I, I may do four or five different odd types of jobs. I get compensated for it. Uh, you know, I don't have an office to go to. I don't have a boss to report to. I just have these really simple arrangements with people who pay me for that work. But now the government's saying, no, I can't do that anymore. We know better than you. we got to step in and protect you. And every damn time they step in and protect on that pretense, they hurt people. That's what happens. It's the exact opposite. That's what happens. I'm just pointing out that kind of crazy crap is going on without, without the Congress. It's the border. Same deal. All that's happening without the Congress, even though we have laws on the books right now that empowers the president to, to obtain control of the border and to stem the flow of illegals coming across. He don't need any more laws. Just make it simple. Why do we got to have a 370-page monstrosity bill with all these crazy triggers and all this complex legal language? That's not necessary. you got laws right now, Mr. President, that would allow you to shut the border down. But you, sir, are the one playing politics. You're saying it's Donald Trump's the reason I can't shut the border down. No, sir. It's you. You reverse those policies. You have the power today to shut it down. You choose not to for political gain. Out of, for selfish reasons. That's what it's all about. I know. Weird. Selfish politician. Imagine that. Coming right back in the Element Well studio. Stay with us. It's so awesome! 
Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Come on, let's get on with the show. On Super Talk Mississippi. Dan and Hattiesburg said... Hey, Gerard, are you stepping out for a 45-minute break? Rhino just started in Agata de Vida. <laughs> uh, as I recall, I had the I had the LP. It was an entire side. They gave everybody in the band uh, a solo part, right? Had the drum solo that all of us aspiring amateur drummers had to memorize. That was like the, the pinnacle. If you could play the in Agata de Vida drum solo had a guitar solo the organ solo the whole bit right so 45 minutes or so i think dan's probably right and a fun little pop culture factoid in the same fact book on the simpsons okay the long-running cartoon the same fact book that says crusty the clown got his start in tupelo mississippi as a mime it says that the cure for hiccups is to put a metal trash can on the victim's head and play the drum solo from an agata devita <laughs> they will no longer have the hiccups they may not be able to hear but they will also no longer have the hiccups <laughs> just stares it out of them huh uh bradford pontotoc says is a native of pontotoc county and and that is of course uh from from where senator wicker hails he's an embarrassment to pontotoc county and the republican party and he needs to go herschel says it was a good interview so, uh, also, how do we stabilize Social Security? This is on the ceasefire tax line for the future of, of uh, America. Yeah, so uh, that's from Marshall. And looking at retiring next year, I believe that's the way I understand it. They're from Byram, uh, Byram pardon me. And so, you know, it's it's the same thing as PERS. And, and I, I'm not trying to avoid the question and oversimplify it, but it, it really is the truth. You've got to have more coming in, less going out, or a combination of the two. Um, last I checked, $78 trillion? That's the unfunded liabilities associated with Social Security and Medicare. Medicare trust fund will be fully depleted by 2028 during the next term. Think about that, folks. Medicare will not be able to pay its bills based on its current financial condition in a short four years. You talk about chaos inflicted upon the economy and in particular, the healthcare industry in this country. I can't comprehend that. Are you hearing anybody talk about it? Nope. We're not going to touch it. Okay, well, then it's going broke in four years. Won't be able to meet its obligations. It'll have money coming in, just not enough to fully cover its obligations. And you know what will happen? We'll go borrow money. That's what will happen. We're already doing that, by the way. Medicare is not fully funded by the combination of the trust fund and the and the inflows from payroll deductions. Which, by the way, Thomas and Greenwood says the solution is just discontinue payroll deductions. Stop withholding for Social Security FICA taxes, Social Security and Medicare, and uh, that would change things. It would. It would crash the global economy. hate to tell you that, uh, Thomas. So he says... Um, Voters would demand reduced spending and taxes. Do you disagree? I do. Uh, what I don't want is, uh, <laughs> you just think about that. If if folks didn't have those payments withheld, or those taxes withheld, I should say, from their gross pay as an employee, we would have to hire an army, I mean millions of people, funded by the government, 
to chase down the FICA deadbeats. No doubt about it. Absolutely no doubt about it. What are they going to do? Lock them up? We don't have enough jail space to lock up everybody that would be delinquent on their FICA. Now, self-employed folks, they're familiar with this. They have to pay that now in the form of what's called SC tax, self-employment tax, when they file their tax returns. you got to pay both sides. That's the downside of being a, a, a subcontractor, a self-employed individual. you got to pay both sides. So in other words, the employer and the employee share, which are the same. So, no, it's not really a tenable idea. Um, you wouldn't have to set them up on a payment plan and bow to their demands to lower taxes. If people only knew what they paid, they call for tax cuts. Wrong. It's just totally wrong, Thomas. You're, you, you know, I tell you what happens is there's a lot of people in this country that live paycheck to paycheck, and if their paycheck went up, they'd live paycheck to paycheck. They're not going to hold money back. No, the average American savings account is less than $1,200. Not going to hold money back so they can, uh-oh, i got to pay my FICA taxes. Oh, don't worry about that. That's just the government. And again, unless you've got millions of people to chase the deadbeats, and you'd spend more money chasing that small amount of money, honestly, that they owe, than you would in collecting it. You'd be upside down. It'd be a net expense to the taxpayers. The same with um, yeah, same with federal and state taxes. Absolutely same thing, Thomas. You're you're being uh, really naive about uh, just human nature. Let's see. Uh, I think we got most everything else that folks sent us in. Herschel said it was a good interview. Appreciate that. Um, and just to let you know, the person that asked about yeah, Marshall and Social Security. So here again, there's no congruence on what Democrats and Republicans want with respect to Social Security, Medicare. You've seen uh, some Republicans who have been absolutely chastised for even suggesting it talk about increasing the retirement age and just changing the benefits for folks that are coming into the system, young folks, the benefit structure. But what you get on the Democrat side is we just absolutely have to raise taxes. The only solution, by the, by the way, they not only want to raise taxes. If you look at their plans, they want to increase benefits. But they want to raise taxes on the wealthy people and increase benefits for the less wealthy. We're coming right back after Fox News and Super Talk News with Jeremy Nelson, partner at Element Wealth. And now, the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. That's what I like to listen to. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Here on Super Talk Mississippi. We're back in the Element Well studio on this hump day. <laughs> I forgot to call for you in the last hour. Um, got kind of tied up talking to Representative Eubanks before we went on the air, so but we handled it here. And, of course, a little wheel in the sky by the boys entertaining us uh, and uh, bumping us into hour three of middays from the Element Well studio. We're pleased to welcome now Jeremy Nelson, partner at Element Wealth. All right, Jeremy. I'll I'll tell you this that uh, I'm right now. I'm liking what I'm seeing. 
in the markets. Uh, I'm kind of pleasantly surprised we had a a, uh, a negative day on Monday, and that's because it just seems like we're dang hyper-focused on every word Jerome Powell uh, makes, uh, states, and then in any sort of, of uh, indication of where the Fed may stand with respect to the future of the benchmark interest rate just seems to be driving investor sentiment, more than just fundamentals and technicals it, of just good old-fashioned making a profit. It, it absolutely is, right? And and we've seen this, you know, look, over the decades, you know, the Fed matters and everyone pays attention to what the Fed has to say and what they do, but post-financial crisis, uh, Adam Parker, who was the former chief strategist at uh, Morgan Stanley, I remember in, in about 2011 or so, he kind of coined the phrase, bad news is good news, because it meant that you were going to get more accommodation from the Fed, right? <laughs> That's right. And, you know, ever since the financial crisis, you know, we really have been driven by, you know, monetary policy, bailing out bad fiscal policy. Uh, but ultimately, right, what matters, where the rubber meets the road, is companies making money. But, sure. But the market does trade in the short term on sentiment. And what we're seeing is you know, I think that the Fed is concerned that things are getting overheated, right? Because you've got you've got a stock market that's expensive. I'm not going to say it's not a bubble or anything like that, but it's not cheap, right? And they're concerned that if they start, you know, backing off rates too quickly that things are just going to explode up and then ultimately boom, you do hit a bubble. So, it seems like, you know, they're trying to get in front of the market a little bit say, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, slow down. Yeah, we're not we're not quite ready for March and, you know, now everyone's kicking out. Okay, well it'll be May when they when they start cutting, but uh, you know, at our economic forecast events, we showed here's what the market expects out of Fed funds for the year, and it was you know forecasting about six rate cuts, and we just said there's no way they're cutting six times, not with the strength that we're seeing in the economy right, right. now. Right, right, yeah. and that that seems to be uh, somewhat prescient because now we know that uh, a March cut's off the table, yeah. and and the indication we got Monday is that May's probably off the table. And that, and so the markets just said, "Uh oh, sell off." You know, look. I mean, how do how do you go in and cut rates when you're still not to your the level you need to be at, right? From an inflation, From an inflation perspective, perspective. Yeah. Mm-hmm. and you're still at full employment. I mean, sure, we're starting to see you know a few a few more cuts, kind of in the tech sector, largely, right? We saw like Snapchat come out, and they're going to lay off some of their employees and a few other companies, but. You know, overall employment is is strong. I mean, all this infrastructure money is still flowing through the system, and that's creating a base of economic support. Plus, you got a two trillion dollar deficit going into the economy right now, right? Helping things out. So, very very tough for the Fed to say we're going to cut right now. Yeah. Well, and and they still seem uh, bent on achieving the uh, the two percent target, and I think it's fair to say. Getting from nine back uh, at the peak in uh, 2022 mm-hmm. down to the present level of 3.2, that was uh, perhaps an easier task than getting from 3.2 to two. That, that's it. it. It's finishing the job is the challenge, right? Yeah. I mean, we all knew that some of this inflation was going to take care of itself because. A lot of it had to do with the supply chain issues during COVID, mm-hmm. right? And we knew that those were going to ease and get better and that inflation was going to come down. But really finishing the job and getting down to that 2% is is where the challenge is. And I don't think that they're overly restrictive right now. You know, I mean, we've seen their, their 
you know, they're holding rates here. They haven't continued to increase in, what, six-plus months now, right? It's, right. Been, it's been a good while that they haven't raised rates. They're continuing to work the balance sheet down. That's what nobody talks yeah. about. But, you know, they've brought the balance sheet down about $1.3 trillion, so they're letting assets roll off. Um, I, I think they just need to hold course right now. Yeah, of course. At the same time, of course, that they're shrinking their balance sheet, the Fed at least, we got um, on, the, on the fiscal side, we got the Treasury spending like crazy, and, and they're having to sell more bonds and raise money to, uh, to cover our spending. And ultimately, this is the long-term issue, right? I mean, because when you start looking at the interest on the debt and where that is going – now, look, people have to understand, we're still nowhere near as a percentage of GDP what we were in the 80s. But you got to remember where interest rates were right. in the 80s as right. well. But at the same time, in the 80s, you didn't have the same level of spending on entitlement programs. There was more room in the budget to figure things out. Yeah, I mean, we're on a track where we could easily, if we continue on this path, get to where interest costs are the same as the military. Well, I think we're pretty close to that right now, honestly. Uh, and it, it wouldn't shock me if that doesn't happen in fiscal year 25, 26. It'll be neck and neck. It's getting up there. So that's where that's where you start running into, you know, the, the big issues, because you were just talking about it on the segment before I was listening. And look, there's, there's no way that you can address this issue without addressing spending in some shape, form, or fashion, right? right. I mean, ultimately, there's going to have to be some compromise on both sides to address this issue so that it doesn't manifest into something much bigger. Yeah, and to your point, uh, and, and we just wanted to um, also clarify that uh, some, sometimes folks get a little upset about use of the word entitlements, and, and that is what Social Security and Medicare are referred to, and that really just means – you paid into it, thus you're entitled to it. Yeah, so just ch- I just want to share it, the context there. Exactly. And I've, yeah. I've always been one. I don't like the fact that we call it an entitlement program because it feels like it's free. Yeah. But, I mean, hey, it's, we're putting our money in out of this, and we expect to get exactly, out of it. Exactly. Yeah. So when, when someone refers to just pure redistribution welfare as an entitlement, even though you've really not paid anything to earn that entitlement, that's, that's a different story. Yeah. Very, yeah, so very, I just very. wanted to make that distinction. But to your point, so we we could get busy, and this is what I was trying to convey in, in that segment that you probably heard, is that I'm all for eliminating all the frivolous, unnecessary, duplicative, and just crazy spending and all the waste, fraud, and abuse that occurs, honestly, throughout the spectrum of government. I'm all for that. But at the same time, you, you're kind of nipping at the heels there and, and trimming around the edges. The interest costs keep going up. To offset that yep. and and spending on entitlements, which is on autopilot, which yep. is statutory, it keeps going up. So you're not really making any progress. It doesn't mean don't do it. It just means that you got to be bold and do more if you really want to uh, do something meaningful. Ultimately, there is going to have to be a big plan. Now, look, this is an election year. Nothing is going to happen. Zero. Right. Uh, you know, we did our forecast event in Mobile. We were actually interrupted by the congressman from Mobile. He came into our event. Oh, okay. And it was kind of funny because it was right at the point in time when we were talking about the debt and deficits. And he said, oh, sorry to you know interrupt. I said, actually, congressman, perfect time. We just yeah. finished this section. What are you going to do about it? You know, And his <laughs> response was, well, 
we can't even get our own party in yeah, exactly. right now. I totally agree. And, and so uh, you you can you can scream and cry blood and dance and do everything else you want, but you got to go bold. And and by the time you even get to a point where you do something sort of minor, and unfortunately, a hundred billion dollars these days is minor in a six point three trillion dollar budget with a two trillion dollar deficit. Yeah. And as far as the eye can see, we're set for two trillion dollar deficits. Uh, absolutely. I mean, there, there's I don't see where they're going to be able to cut anything that dramatic and that significant that's going to sure up that deficit right now. And ultimately, I mean, what you're doing when when you're spending in deficit levels like this is you're pulling from the future, Yeah. right? And, and so it's just like us, right? If we spend more money than we make, eventually we got to pay it, pay it back, right? And uh, so that's why I do think, though, that uh, you know, pro-growth policy is very important because you got to be able to grow your way through this. But you're, you really have to cap spending, you know, cut back, right? This isn't something that's going to be addressed overnight. You can't address two trillion dollars in one year, right? But it's something that has to be a major focus, and you're ultimately going to have to have both parties on on the deal. And and you know, there's no consensus there because uh, one party may have an appetite to truly rein in spending. The other party believes that the way to address the deficit is to raise taxes. Yeah. And, 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 and that's, you know, some level of figuring out how to raise revenue is going to be important. Now, growth can handle some of that, right? Yeah. Uh, but you're not going to be able to really go in and come up with a plan where you're going to cut taxes. But raising taxes is not necessarily pro-growth. Exactly. So So, uh, it's a a catch-22. Yeah, exactly. we got Jeremy Nelson. He's a partner at Element Wealth. We're coming right back in the Element Wealth studio. Stay with us. Money, it's a crime. That keeps Mississippi talking. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Let's get on with it. On Super Talk Mississippi. We're back in the Element Wealth studio. We're visiting with Jeremy Nelson, partner at Element Wealth. So, bright spot the last couple of weeks, uh, earnings reports coming down from the big technology names, the, the, the mega caps, unbelievable. I mean, they blew it out. Microsoft, Amazon, the one that shocked, of course, Meta. Mm-hmm. Unbelievable. Up 20% Friday, 82, 81 bucks a share or so. And there's some analysts that are putting a, it's what four hundred or so I think right now, and they're putting a four sixty eight, yeah. Okay, they're putting a, a north of six hundred dollar price target on it, and it shocked everybody. Uh, produced uh, beat top and bottom, 
$14 billion, biggest quarter of net income, net operating income, biggest quarter in their history. Does it seem like you think Zuckerberg is, has kind of gotten back to focusing on their core business and uh, also stripping some frivolous expenses out of their model, and uh, that contributed to this record quarter? We're seeing this across the tech sector right now where, you know, it wasn't about making money in years past, right? And so we always knew that these companies had tremendous free cash flow and they could make investments in growth, but they overhired, right? And so we saw, you know, in 2022 and then in 2023 that they the market kind of said, no, look, we want to see that you can make money. And so they started cutting headcounts. You know, when's the last time that you heard about – uh, Facebook or Meta and the Metaverse. Nobody's even talking about that anymore, right? But in 2021, it was all Metaverse, 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 and now yeah. it's like, no, we're, we're, out we're making money, right? <laughs> advertising. We're, we're past that. Now, you know, we did see Google, right? Google missed on advertising revenue, so maybe Facebook or Meta picked up on some of that. But overall, what you're seeing is a focus on profitability, a cut in headcounts and spending. So they're being much more fiscally disciplined, which long-term is is a good thing. Yeah. Well, I, I, and then, of course, uh, Apple, uh, world's most valuable company, on any given day, mm-hmm. somewhere, vacillates between them and, and Microsoft and Amazon's now yep. on their heels. Uh, but my gosh, even even though their guidance was a little negative and they took a little hit, they made $34 billion in the quarter. $34 billion. They're, they're making it. The challenge there is that the revenue growth is stalled. Yeah, right. and, and largely due to uh, concerns about future sales of iPhones, yeah. which still comprise a big part of their revenue mix. And then the challenges they're having in, in a giant market for them, yeah. which is China. Mm-hmm. But here's what I think is going to happen. Uh I think they're working on some sort of AI functionality that's going to be embedded in the device or the operating system itself. And I think we'll see that in the next couple of years. And when we do, uh, there's about 2 billion cell phones, <laughs> Apple iPhones, that are going to upgrade. There'll be yeah. something compelling them because it's going to be embedded in almost all the apps the, the, on the platform. The question mark is going to be the price point that consumers are willing to pay. Agree. Right. I mean, because you think about it. I mean, your phone is more expensive than buying a computer now. Yeah. Well, Rhino's pointed out the, the Vision Pro, which is, what, 3600 bucks or yeah. something. I mean, it, it's got a very high price point, and, and I agree. But still, though, that sort of refresh cycle could generate a bunch of revenue and a bunch of profit. And, you know, their margins on, on iPhones are quite high. Well, I mean, if you think about it, I mean, if your iPhone over the last, you know, five, six years, what's the only – the only thing they ever change is the camera, right? Camera's been upgraded. Better camera, better camera. Well, a little look, better battery life, I mean, maybe. I don't care about but, my camera. But AI functionality. That, that would be that, big. That would be pivotal. Thing, yeah. Things that will improve productivity. And, I, and I've been a big advocate of AI and – in explaining to people, it's not bad. It's not necessarily going to take over the world. It's not necessarily. It's not the robot uprising. Yeah. But if you if you take the approach or view that labor productivity, right, our ability to do more in an hour, is the backbone of economic growth. Right. And AI is that new thing. It's like the computer. You know, back in the eighties and nineties, right? Once we got to that mass adoption, we became much more productive. So, AI is definitely something in the future that we are going to benefit from economically. You know, we're not there yet, right now. I've, I've got I talk to people that work at Google and other companies that are friends of mine, and you know, it, it's not there today. 
but it's getting there. It's coming. I mean, you're going to have to start showing some sort of returns on these massive investments. And as you well know, I know you track all these companies, there's not a company in this country that doesn't have a major AI investment and uh, has commissioned uh, some sort of effort, Uh, regardless of industry. doesn't matter. It's absolutely transcending every industry. Um, and there are a lot of companies that are benefited from that. Accenture. I just read a report this morning. McDonald's mm-hmm. has got a huge AI effort underway. And you think, what do they need that for, selling hamburgers? Mm-hmm. They're talking about some sort of AI technology. They didn't really get into details, didn't provide any color, out in the restaurants. Yep. I mean, for the servers. It, it is, it's fundamentally going to alter the labor market, especially you know on the lower end of the labor market uh, from a wage perspective. And it, it's it's... It's going to take massive capital investment, and there's going to be some trial and error with these things. Uh, but ultimately, I think that it's good for um, productivity and profitability in the future. And I only, I, I only brought this up because it's a bright spot, and I think largely that's dragging the entire market, these these um, stellar earnings reports we got from these big mega-cap technology companies, which is typically considered to be where all the growth is. Yeah, the, the challenge is to, if, if you make the mistake of extrapolating the current growth rates into the future and you assume that it's going to continue at that rate, you're, yeah. you're probably wrong, yeah. right? And, and so the challenge is how much do you pay for those future earnings and, and valuations and things like that? Yeah, I use the example of Microsoft, you know, if you go back and look at Microsoft, Microsoft, you know, in 2000 peaked, and then it took, you know, 15 years for the stock to get back to where it was, despite the fact that they basically doubled or tripled their earnings over that 15-year period of time. So investors just have to be very careful about what they're paying for these companies. And now, look, if they continue to grow at the rates that they're growing, sure. But the law of large numbers does start to catch up at a certain point in time. And and it's it's cyclical. Yeah. I mean, because uh, my experience just being in the technology business, just as soon as something kind of starts to level out, become mainstream, almost a commodity, boom, something else is invented. And uh, those that are aware of that and and uh, can react and are agile and have have management structures that can that can yeah. uh, take advantage of whatever the next frontier is. And the market will change its tune. I mean, if you think about Apple back in you know 2012, right? Apple traded well below the market multiple, right? So they were trading at a discount to what the S and P 500 did because it was viewed as a devices company. Yeah. And then all of a sudden they changed. The, you know, the market changed its tune and started putting a tech valuation back on it. So. Investors just have to be really careful. It's important to be diversified. It's important to understand that there are other assets out there that are undervalued or reasonably valued. You want to make sure that you stay diversified because if you th- if you think that just like last year, 60% of the returns are going to come from seven stocks yeah. for the long term – that's probably not going to yeah, happen. It's not sustainable yeah. long term. So um, l- let's talk about your services. And, and um, I'm happy to let the audience know I have before that I'm a satisfied uh, client. And uh, I guess I'd put myself in the, the, the cashed out retirement phase, if you will. Um, but 
you have a lot of clients like that. You advise a lot of clients that that reach that situation and have accumulated a bit of a nest egg, and they yep. want to they want to put that to work and protect it. Of course, they have to live off of it as well. So, talk about your approach there. Yeah, you know. So, what's really important for clients is that you go through a process, right? You inventory what you own, what your future cash flows, because. Why do we save money for retirement so that we can turn that into a paycheck and maintain our lifestyle? So it's very important to have a plan, yeah. right? And, and my belief is this. you got to create a framework that's unique for everyone of a balance of income, growth, and guarantees. Sometimes people get way too aggressive and they start chasing things and then you can blow your retirement up by being too aggressive. You know, Some people are too conservative and they forget, hey, I still need stocks and long-term growth assets in my plan in order to achieve the goals that I have. And, and think about inflation over time, right? So you need growth in your portfolio. It's just critically important that you're that you're diversified, that you understand the risk that's in your portfolio, that you understand where your paychecks are going to come from. And now, I mean, especially with required minimum distributions – you know, out at set, going out to age seventy-five. Talking about 401ks. 401ks, yeah. IRAs, yeah. things like that. You've got a gap where you can do things like Roth conversions. I did a calculation for someone yesterday. They're retiring with about one point two million dollars. By the time that they're a hundred, now they'll probably live to ninety. But this is factoring in you know the ten years before their kids have to pull out the money. It was like $3 million in difference if we did some smart things with Roth conversions. So you basically, you, you convert, you pay tax now, yeah. uh, and then in the future, nothing's taxable. It's yeah, tax-free. And, and so. we just do it over over a window of time. For them, it was going to be 11 years. Yeah. Well, something else I'll point out, and we got to go here, but uh, if you're thinking about doing this on your own, one thing that I'll point out, I've been in your office many times, you've got access, because of your line of work, to tools we, we just average people don't have exactly. access to. And, exactly. And I I rely on you and the use of those tools to take care of my assets. I don't have the time, the knowledge, nor access to those tools. I point that out. It's a critical distinction between the individual investor and an institutional investor. That's why I don't do my own technology in my office, right? Same deal. We got computer people for that. Same deal. Appreciate you coming in, Jeremy. Appreciate it. Thanks, man. Coming right back, folks. Half an hour left in the Element Well studio. Everybody ready? I'm ready. Ready here. Middays with Gerard Gibbons on Super Talk Mississippi. I should laugh, but I cry because your love has passed me by. You took me by surprise. You didn't realize that I was waiting. Time goes slowly, but That's the great Burton Cummings, the guess who? Great tune that is. Hit number one in Canada, but never made it to the top of the charts in America. Well, they're Canadians. And, of course, the lead guitarist for the guest who was none other than Randy Bachman, who really became famous as one of the names in the group Bachman Turner Overdrive. You can see Randy playing that guitar in the video recording of that tune, Burton Cummings. Of course, the uh, the mustached uh, 
lead singer. What a great voice he and had as well. Bachman's another example of someone who was classically trained. If I'm not mistaken, he played violin ah. up until the time he was 12 or 13 years old. And he got tired of having such a rigid, structured practice for the violin that he decided to pick up guitar because it was a little bit more freeing. Huh. Unbelievable. Uh, they were very popular. Uh, that's probably, what, 67, 68, something like that? Oh, yeah. I think so. Uh, laughing? Yeah, 69. 69, okay. Uh, American Woman, another famous tune, and that was supposedly based on a true story that uh, one of the band members, I, bl- I believe this is true, would, had had uh, kind of a controversial relationship with an American woman. He, they, of course, from across the border there in uh, Canada. They're Canucks, as they call them. Speaking of Canada, you know what they drink a lot of up there? Beer. Beer soda. And it's that, that potent kind of beer, too, right? Uh I I spent a fair amount of time back in my early working days up in uh, the northern part of the country, not far from the Canadian border. I'm just trying to remember what the Canadian beer was that it's been 20 years ago now, but they they had a big ad push. Labatt Blue. Labatt Blue, yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah, I absolutely remember that. The bear wandering into a bar, and everybody's like, oh, it's a bear, and the bear just saddles up to the bar and orders a Labatt Blue. Man, they drink some beer, though. Uh, well, the reason I brought that up is because former President Donald Trump, he's making a bit of a pitch for the comeback of Bud Light. He says, uh, I think I had a statement from him. I, I don't know if I I recorded it or not, but um, he said something to the effect, they're really not a woke company and that they just kind of a bad rap. They made, uh, obviously, a, a very poor decision they did. And they're uh, not really a bad company, and a woke company, not a bad company, but a, a woke company. And uh, therefore, I think he's going to come out. Yeah, he said the Bud Light ad was a mistake of epic proportions, and for that, a very big price was paid. But Anheuser-Busch is not a woke company. Capitalized the W in woke, by the way. But I can give you plenty that are. And building a list and might just release it for the world to see. Oh, wow. That's going to be fun. Donald Trump's list of woke companies. (laughs) Uh, I've also heard, you probably have as well, they are spending a small, actually it's not a small, a big fortune on Super Bowl ads this coming Sunday, trying to regain their customer base, which they lost once they featured Dylan Mulvaney, transgender actor. Uh, I'm calling him an actor, by the way, not an actress. He's a fake actress. That's what he is. He's a faux actress. That cost him a bunch, as you know. So they say they're getting back to basics for Super Bowl commercials, and they're going to lean into some humor. And, of course, they got Donald Trump. Now, I I wonder, do you think that Mr. Trump's sort of statement there, is it, I guess, kind of loose endorsement of Bud Light might propel their sales? you think there will be some folks that are Donald Trump supporters that say, well, if Mr. Trump says that it's okay, then, okay, I'm going to go back and drink Bud Light. 
You think? I don't Maybe. know. Yeah. I I saw that this morning, and I I was taken aback by it. I, I didn't expect to see the former president kind of weigh in on that matter. But he has. This is on his true social platform, what I just read you there. And um, we'll see how it affects him. And then we'll see if all this money they're about to dump into these Super Bowl ads, which usually are pretty impactful. I think if this statement had come out a month or two after all the hoopla, there might have been a bigger rebound. But with this much time having passed, if you were a Bud Light drinker, loyal to the brand, you've had all this time to find yourself a new brand. Yeah. It might be hard to come by. I guess it would get those who just are sort of embarrassed to drink the beer because of all the controversy, and it's now associated with just blatant corporate wokeness. Uh, maybe there's a handful of those out there, but you're right. There's probably a lot of folks that have just moved on and ain't going back. Yeah. I, yeah, so not sure. But looks like that he's kind of inserted himself into this deal with his, his statement there on True Social. You may have also seen that uh, on the national scene, Nikki Haley, out there in uh, Nevada, there was a primary. Now, it's a non-binding primary, very interesting system in Nevada. Whomever wins the primary is not entitled to the delegates. It's non-binding. They have a caucus, however, tomorrow that is binding, whoever wins that. So uh, she, she lost. You saw that to a write-in, someone else or somebody else or None something. None of these candidates. Okay, that's right. I knew it was something along those lines. Uh, Trump, of course, was not on the ballot. Doesn't really care because your your goal is to earn delegates to win the nomination. So that uh, he he didn't he was not featured on the ballot. I also wanted to share something that we got into a little bit yesterday concerning. Uh, the appeals court ruling that Mr. Trump is not immune from the charges that have been levied against him. He, he does not. He's not entitled to any kind of presidential immunity with respect to the charges concerning January 6th. And so I, I misspoke in, in stating that those charges were due to inciting insurrection, and that's not actually true. The charges deal more with with uh, obstruction and and uh, oh, trying to interfere and obstruct with proceedings in the Congress and and um, also his his objecting to the election. I think there are four total charges, if, if I'm not mistaken. So insurrection was not one of them. Here's where I got confused, and I, I thought about this when I went home. The insurrection matter is what is being relied on by the states of California, uh, pardon me, Colorado and Maine to remove Mr. Trump from the ballot. They're not relying on that rather obscure provision of the Constitution that basically says you can't run for office if you've been involved in an insurrection. So extremely subjective, but that's where I got that from. So I apologize for conflating uh, the two. Uh, but the but the charges related to January sixth, the official charges there that uh, he is defending uh, are not that he engaged in and committed insurrection. I, I just wanted to make sure that we pointed that out. 
Um, and so his lawyers are basically saying, you know, every president that leaves office would be, uh, if he, he doesn't, he's not entitled to immunity, there are lawyers that are arguing every president would essentially face some sort of charges by the opposing party since they don't have any kind of presidential immunity for actions taken while they were president. I mean, it's, it is kind of crazy to think about that, because it's so subjective, and it is politically motivated. I think that's that's pretty clear. So we'll, we'll see where all that goes, but I, I did want to pass on that clarification. But the Nevada primary, that's just fascinating to me, that they have a primary, and then which is non-binding, and then they have this caucus as well, which is the Senate seats. So I said earlier that kind of a bold prediction, I thought we might be looking at a House that flips, goes Democrat, and a Senate that flips and goes Republican. But the key seats there that uh, we're paying attention to uh, is on the Senate side. Montana's a big one. Incumbent Democrat John Tester. I mean, Montana is not a liberal state whatsoever. And I've always wondered, how does Tester, who's kind of a, he's a red state Democrat, if you will, how does he stay in office uh, for so long. So he's got some pretty stiff competition with some folks, uh, some uh, a couple of business uh, business person challengers that uh, are raising some money. And so they, they feel like there's a chance to flip that one. Ohio is another one. Democrat, incumbent Democrat, Sherrod Brown is vulnerable. Once again, there are two businessmen running against a Democrat Sherrod Brown, I'd like to see him go for sure. So that's another. Pennsylvania, Bob Casey, Arizona, Kirsten Cinema, incumbent but now an independent, Kerry Lake, mounting an incredible challenge out there. We'll continue this on the other side of the break. Final. This is Jerry Lake. Ah, it's so awesome! Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Come on! Let's get on with the show! Yay. On Super Talk Mississippi. In the town where I was born lived a man who sailed to sea and he told us of his life in the land of submarines so we sailed unto the sun till we found the sea of green and we lived speaking of the fab four that's when they went kind of weird on us Oh, gosh. Let's see. Was that the Beatles or Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band that uh, I think it was still the Beatles, that. wasn't it? I can't remember. Really can. Well, let's see here. Hope to be wrong on this, but I see Democrats winning 60-plus percent of the Hispanic vote again this year. Most Republicans don't have a cohesive understandable message that is repeated often encounters the Dems placing blame on them for the immigration disaster frustration to say the least um, that's not what the polls show that's Gary and the bird polls show that Democrats are losing support from key demographics including Hispanics and um, African Americans I don't know if it's enough to make a difference and it it surely doesn't really affect to a great extent the presidential election it absolutely could affect uh, mainly individual house seats. Uh, but I, I don't know that that's going to be that big a deal. 
Yeah, Yellow Submarine was on the album Revolver right before oh. Sgt. Pepper. Okay, yeah, Revolver's a great album. Uh, of course, one of my uh, one of the songs that's certainly close to my heart, Tax Man, on the uh, on Revolver, and uh, also Eleanor Rigby. Yeah, that was the opposite of Yellow Submarine. It was a double A side. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Interesting. Also has. Um, Gosh, I can't remember the name of the song, but I think it's George playing the, is it called the sitar? The yeah. Indian guitar, right? Which yeah. is just... Uh, Very exotic sound. Wow. And the song opens up with just kind of a solo on that, and it's spectacular. I'm told it's incredibly difficult to play that instrument. It, lo- it looks like it would be. Oh, yeah. Sure. Multiple strings, multiple hand placements. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's see, Thomas in Greenwood wants to know where Jeremy England's recall bill is. I'm not sure he's going to drop it again, Thomas. I doubt it has a chance of passing. He's probably not going to waste his time with that. Um, it's about time for an insurrection, says Larry in my eyes. Well, I don't personally think, Larry, that that's the way to redress our government and, I think, peaceful protesting and so forth. But, look, here's what's got to happen more than anything. And I would say this, by the way, to Gary Neberg that talked about the messaging and how that's impacting the Hispanic uh, and African-American vote. The Democrats are just better, in my opinion, at retail politicking. They just are. And it's let's be honest, it's much easier to sell what they stand for. When they start selling, just giving the people the largesse of government and selling, just attacking and shaking down corporations, this junk fee stuff I've been reading about is insane how much the government is inserting themselves in the private sector. That's how they think they're they're addressing inflation. We're just going to stop all these junk fees. Like, yeah, that's what they're talking about at the kitchen table, not the price of milk and bread and eggs and gas. It's the junk fees that's getting Americans all riled up. But here's what I would say. we got to do a better job of selling freedom and liberty and free markets. We're not good at that. I'll just be honest with you. We're not. We think everybody just gets that from a value perspective and why that's a, a, a better uh, approach to government. Well, it doesn't help that society does seem to be getting dumber. I, I agree, and and that's starting at the lowest levels, right? Just like uh, Gary sent us the uh, um, story earlier about a kindergartner teacher, a kinder kindergarten teacher, telling uh, a student at that level, a preschooler, America's evil and wicked, and we just need to tear it down. Well, it doesn't help when you're brainwashing starting at four, and that just continues throughout their entire. Uh, educational uh, experience. Not good. And then they get to college, and it's mostly mostly staffed by left-wing Marxist professors in the classrooms that continue spouting the same nonsense. So they're just obedient well, little Marxists. filled with envy because they know that the value they add to society is little to none especially compared to the work they put into it. I totally agree. But I have a doctorate in Russian literature. Good for you. Can you flip a burger? Because that's about all the value you add to society. Now, you add a heck of a lot of value to academia because it's a niche topic. 
Totally agree. But in the real world, how often do you have to apply what you've learned about Russian literature to your daily life? <laughs> so true. Dostoevsky was depressed. Okay, uh, write another paper on it. That's great for academia. It doesn't mean squat in the real world. Zero value in uh, in real society. Larry wanted to know in my so why are so many corporations woke if the Democrats are throwing them under the bus? I'll tell you why, Larry. They don't associate uh, the woke ideology with the Democrats the way you and I do. We see it. We know it. We know they're pushing They don't. Um, and and they, they believe that it's in their best financial interest. I've actually read quite a bit about that. They think it helps them financially uh, to try to latch on to these, these crazy uh, ideologies. We're out here today. We're going to be down at the trademark tomorrow for Ag Up. Stay with us. Stay safe. And God bless. A Super Talk Mississippi media production.